I started this episode planning on covering rude objects in museums, until I managed to realise that I wanted to cover erotica instead, so here we are. We're going to be talking about so many not safe for work things, so don't be surprised when I talk about wanking, anal, dicks and vaginas to list a few. There are certainly things in today's episode that purists would say, hey, that's not erotica, it was meant for a religion or fertility. That may be the case, but I still think that today's episode is the place to talk about them, so they're in here anyway because I can do what I want. There's also much more in this topic and I could have researched it forever, so I've cherry-picked the bits I thought you'd enjoy most. I'm currently recording this wearing an oversized fleece Minnie Mouse onesie. Enjoy that image. I'm Natalie. This is Across the Ages. What did the world look like 37,000 years ago? Well, we're in the Upper Paleolithic, which is also known as the Last Stone Age. This is only 3,000 years after Neanderthals became extinct, 12,000 years before the cave bear went extinct, and around this time the Sahara Desert was wet and fertile. This was also the time which gives us the earliest erotica ever found. In Cusac in France lies the Grotte de Cusac, Cusac, not sure, which is basically an absolutely massive cave full of Paleolithic drawings. And I say their drawings rather than paintings, as they're reminiscent of Picasso line drawings. There's an array of pictures including Paleolithic animals, which are up to 22 metres long, which is about 25 yards, with over 200 drawings in the cave in total. There are drawings of bison, mammoths, rhinos, deer and horses. What we're interested in for today's episode, though, is the erotic drawings inside the cave. There's a line drawing of a naked woman. To describe it to you, she almost looks like she's twerking. Almost 10,000 years later, we get some Aboriginal rock art that dates from about 28,000 years ago, featuring three copulating couples making it one of the oldest, if not the oldest, pornographic drawing in the world. I tried to find out the name of the sex position depicted, but after a few minutes of searching sex position names, I saw far too many that depict people that must be made of wet spaghetti, so I gave up. So instead, I'll tell you that they're both standing and the woman is bent over. I'm going to name it Reaching into a Zoo Enclosure. Between 40,000 BCE and 10,000 BCE, we have a collection of various Venus figurines, which is basically just carved figures of naked women. Many of them have big boobs, big butts, big thighs, big hips and big stomachs, and they're found throughout Europe and Asia. I covered the Velas of Willendorf in the hats episode because she's not quite naked because she was wearing a hat. She's just over 11 centimetres tall and is an estimated to be made 25,000 years ago. Willendorf is a village in Austria, and she was found in 1908 during excavations by archaeologists. Many researchers believe that the statue's voluptuous characteristics are symbols of fertility, beauty and motherhood, as well as erotic. Killing four birds with one stone Venus, as it were. In 10,000 BCE in Cresswell Crags in England, someone decided to draw some fannies on the walls. For my non-British listeners, that means vagina, not your butt. Apparently, though, these are not considered to be erotic drawings... They're supposed to be religious. Why not both? The oldest male clay figurine in the world is 7,200 years old. And would you believe that it's a picture of a bloke with his dick out? Or more accurately, in. Because he's depicted copulating with a woman in the zoo enclosure position. Nice. In 5,200 BCE, we get what is described as a sculpture of the male sex organ from ancient Anatolia in modern-day Turkey. I mean, it's a sculpture of a chody dick with balls. Can't find any official sources with an explanation of this sculpture. It's just stock photo websites, which is a bit weird. The good news is that you can order from heritageprint.com and get it on a jigsaw puzzle, a canvas or a greetings card to send to your mum. 
I would love to know who made this next piece of erotica. One of the things I really love about history is thinking about who made and used the artefacts that we are lucky enough to still have. My next piece of erotica is believed to have been made for a wealthy audience. At some point, the person must have been briefed, right? Anoon, I've got the guys round on Saturday night, yeah, and I want something to make them laugh. Take me some animals doing human stuff, actually, no. No, yeah, fuck it, go on, just draw a load of people shagging on it. Yes, I just did that in some sort of posh English guy accent for an ancient Egyptian, but, you know, you get the idea. I wonder if the artist was not surprised by the request, though no other scrolls of this type have been found to date, or whether he just rolled his eyes and got on with it. The Turin erotic papyrus dates from 1150 BCE. It was discovered in the early 19th century and very much shocked Victorian archaeologists. So much so that the Museum of Turin had to hide it from view for 150 years. You can't tell from the pictures, but it is large. So it's 2.6 metres wide and 25 centimetres tall. So you wouldn't be able to hide it in your sock drawer. It has 12 erotic drawings on it and they all have people in different positions having sex. The same man seems to be featured in all the illustrations. He's scruffy, balding, short, but he has got a massive knob. If you've ever looked at any Egyptian artwork, pretty much everybody is tall and slim, so this is quite an unusual find. The woman on the scroll, however, does conform to the Egyptian beauty standards of the time. Researchers think that this actually wasn't intended for use as pornographic material, but instead it was used as satire. One of my favourite depictions from the scroll is quite difficult to explain, but you know I'll give it a go. Okay, think of a woman trying to stop a sheep running through a gate. Her centre of gravity is low. She's got her legs wide and her knees bent like she's trying to become the letter M. Her arms are stretched out like she's telling someone to talk to the hand. Now, grab one of her ankles and tip it to the side so her foot is at your head. That's the position, with the bloke just standing there. This woman must have had some incredible balance. We've talked about the Egyptian gods before, so we know that they had quite a few. According to Egyptian beliefs, Osiris was the king of all Egypt and he married his sister Isis. Awkward. Their brother Set was jealous of Osiris and wanted his throne, so decided to kill him. Isis was properly sad about this, as you can imagine, and went on a search for his body. Once she found it, she temporarily resurrected him so that they could shag and make a baby. She then gave birth to their son Horus, who is depicted in Egyptian art as a falcon. Okay, I have some questions. 1. Was Osiris's body all weird and decayed? 2. What did Isis say to the guy when he came back from the dead? Something like, stop asking questions and get an erection already? 3. If she has the power to bring people back from the dead, could she not just keep them alive? Your question is probably, why, why is she going on about this story of the gods when she's supposed to be covering erotica? Well, the Brooklyn Museum holds an erotic statue that depicts this exact copulation moment from around 305 BCE. It's made out of limestone and Osiris is about to enter Isis with the cock the length of his... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> with a cock the length of his leg and the girth of his body. Isis is sat on a surface with her leg on his shoulder and her hand on the head of a tiny priest. When I first saw this statue, I thought they were representative of kids and thank Venus they're not. Isis doesn't look confused like you'd think. He looks quite smug with Isis's face looking like she's taking an ID picture for work. <laughs> In 2017, I was lucky enough to visit Pompeii, which in 79 CE was frozen in time with the eruption of the nearby volcano Vesuvius. 
It had always been on my bucket list and the absolute scale of this place is incredible. It's like, yeah, it was a whole city, of course it was big. But when you think of an ancient site, or at least I do anyway, I think of something like the Colosseum, which is awesome, but it fits into a relatively small area. This was what I was expecting to see, but the city is enclosed within walls that are two miles long, with 163 acres in the middle. I'm absolutely no good with acres, but I did a conversion, and it's about 123 football pitches, so pretty large. So let's pretend we're a non-Roman merchant who has come to Pompeii to trade. You don't speak Latin, so I hope you can find your way well enough. It's been a hard day selling, and you're in the mood for a bit of, shall we say, light relief. As you walk down the huge roadway made up of stones, you end up seeing dicks on the floor. Not ones that someone has lost or anything, but dicks carved into the stones on the floor itself. The direction of the erections, however, aren't pointing somewhere willy-nilly. They point the way to the town brothel. Just what you need. You keep following them until you come to a doorway manned by a doorman who sees you in. The doorman points upwards to some drawings at the top of the wall, and you see a selection of sex positions that you assume you are supposed to choose from. Well, thank Aphrodite, because you didn't fancy trying to explain what you wanted to someone who had no idea what you were going on about and looking like an idiot. A vision of a woman comes out of a cell covered by a curtain, gives you a wink, takes your brothel token, and nods when you point at the wall. Let us remember that most sex workers in ancient Italy were slaves. So whereas you probably had a great time, it's very unlikely that the person who lived behind that curtain did. As well as male-female depictions to choose from at the brothel, there are also male-male-female depictions, male-male depictions, and there are erotic pictures of female couples at the suburban baths. Also found in Pompeii were spintrie, 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 <laughs> which are commonly called brothel tokens. We'll go with that, it's easier. These were bronze or brass coins found which have a Roman numeral on one side and surprise, surprise, a sex position on the other. It was illegal to use coins with the emperor's face on it in such places, so this could explain why brothel tokens were in use. There's a really fantastic book by Elodie Harper called The Wolf Den, which is about a group of women who are enslaved in a brothel in Pompeii. The next one in the series comes out in May, and I for one cannot wait. You should definitely read it if you like historic fiction. Have you ever heard a penis described as the divine phallus? In ancient Rome, people could not get enough of them. Those little buggers got everywhere. They were graffitied on walls, made into jewellery, put on candle holders, pendants and rings to name a few. There's this amazing charm that was found in Pompeii and I'm going to describe it for you. So imagine a dog. Replace its head and front legs with a penis. Make its tail a penis. Make its penis a massive penis. And give it bird wings. Now a keychain. It's one of the most over-the-top things I've ever seen, and God, I want it. Phalluses were seen as to be able to offer divine protection, and our old pal Pliny the Elder calls it Medicus Invidae, a doctor or remedy for the envy, for envy or the evil eye. The Warren Cup is a Greco-Roman silver cup decorated with two images of men having sex, and dates to the first century. As we have learned, it's not unusual for Romans to depict sex, I mean, it seems like you couldn't walk around any part of the Roman Empire without a picture of a willy shoved into your face. Though male-female couple scenes do, out, do outweigh homoerotic art. Illustrated cuts were usually used as talking points at dinner parties and it would be interesting to know whether this would have raised an eyebrow at the table. There was no word for homosexuality in ancient Rome. Homosexual male relationships weren't unusual, but they did have really weird-ass rules. Roman men were free to partake as long as they were the ones doing the penetrating 
and as long as the other guy was socially inferior, either being a slave or a prostitute. As long as you were guy doing the penetrating, you weren't seen as any less masculine than the hetero guy. On one side of the cup, there's a bearded man, the top, having sex with a beardless youth, the bottom, and on the other side showing a young man with a younger servant. It went through many private collections after being purchased in 1911 from a dealer in Jerusalem. It ended up in the British Museum, who bought it for £1.8 million in 1999, which at the time was the most expensive single purchase by the museum. There's a great episode that covers it on the A History of the World in 100 Objects podcast if you want to hear more. Do you remember? In the Tomb Discoveries episode, we learned about Queen Puabi, and then you heard even more about the beer straws in her tomb in the alcohol episode. No? Let me remind you. Around 2600 BCE, Queen Puabi was queen of Sumeria, which is in modern-day Iraq. Her tomb, which was found by archaeologists in the early 20th century, was absolutely full to the brim with objects made of dazzling gold and precious metal. So these beer straws I mentioned, don't think of nasty plastic straws that kill turtles and should be outright banned, but think of giant metal straws used to drink beer out of a big vat. You see, Sumerian barley beer was unfiltered, so it had a film of sediment on the top that you don't want ending up on your lip. Three straws of gold, silver and copper encased in lapis lazuli were found in Queen Puabi's grave. From around the same time, there's been found votive plaques of a bloke doing a woman from behind. She's clearly bored as she's bent over and drinking beer through a straw. Dr Julia Asante, a Near Eastern social historian, said the inclusion of this beer drinking was undoubtedly a visual pun. The straw in the woman's mouth and the man raising a cup of wine to his lips were symbolic of performing oral sex on their respective partners. There were many plaques from this era where missionary didn't really appear to be on the menu, though apparently beer was. Like the ancient Romans, the Mesopotamians also wore phallic objects as charms and jewellery, but also had clay models of vulvas. I saw a tweet from someone the other day about why men are obsessed with drawing dicks on everything, because women don't go round drawing vaginas on everything. As any of my friends will know, despite the fact that I am a woman, I also draw penises on things because one, it's funny, and two, it's quick and easy to draw. Definitely easier than drawing a vulva, that's for sure. I saw a dick on the van the other day and it really made me laugh because it was along the bumper so it was super long. Top marks to whoever ever drew that one. Hello, it's time to visit Asia! The Kama Sutra is such a well-known piece of literature that when I searched for it, I get links to Men's Health, Cosmopolitan and GQ, showing me seven positions for beginners, 17 sex positions that I absolutely must try, and the only Kama Sutra positions worth bothering with. Historians have dated the text between 400 BCE and 300 CE in India. The Kama Sutra is more of an instructional manual rather than a piece of erotica, but I wanted to include it anyway. It includes info on the pleasure of sex, uniqueness of every lover, foreplay, types of climax, basically everything you can think of. Regardless though, just because it wasn't intended as erotica doesn't mean it wasn't used that way. Just like that lingerie catalogue you kept in your bedside table as a teenager. As well as hetero relationships, the Kama Sutra also covers same-sex relationships, with two chapters being dedicated to lesbians. It remarks on bisexual relationships, as well as there being two sorts of third nature, one where men behave like women and women behave like men. India also has mad erotic statues on their temples, with the outside covered with erotic depictions. 
There's websites with entire lists of the top 5, top 10, top 15 erotic temples to visit, so they certainly must have been popular. The Indian Times describes that the outer walls of the temple symbolise the worldly pleasures that humans need to give up to reach their inner sanctum or god. Shunga is a type of Japanese erotic art which dates back to the Heian period, which is between 794 CE and 1185 CE. It's often created in woodblock print, and there are also hand-painted versions. The word Shunga itself means picture of spring, spring being a Japanese slang word for sex. Shunga reached its height in popularity in the Edo period between the 17th and 19th centuries, and this was because woodblocking printing techniques improved, allowing more than ever to be printed and distributed to the happy, happy public. In 1661, a law was passed banning Shunga. I mean, they're pretty racy, and are basically prints of people shagging with very graphic drawings of their bits and bobs. In 1772, another much more strict law was introduced, banning the production of all new books unless an important official gave his approval. Shunga went underground and stayed there until the late 20th century. The style of them is super exaggerated, and some of them take a bit of looking at to figure out what is going on. There's heads, legs and genitals wrapped up all over the shop. Despite this, the figures are often seen fully clothed, just with their bits popping out. In Japan, nudity was not particularly sexual and people were used to seeing people of the same and opposite sex naked in the public baths. Shunga was enjoyed by people of all classes and was considered a lucky charm and protection from fire, of all things. In British slang, a sex part is someone who is good-looking. When we look at the South American moquet culture, though, sex pot means just that. Clay pots with people shagging on top. It's certainly not something you'd expect to see on the Great British Throwdown. It's like the Bake Off, but with pottery. The Moque culture is an ancient civilization that occupied northern Peru from 100 CE up to 800 CE. They were fantastic potters and have produced some pretty erotic bits of pottery depicting all sorts of sex acts. The only thing is, they barely made any pottery showing vaginal penetration, which everyone else couldn't get enough of depicting. No. These guys were all about the blowjobs, the wanking, and the butt sex. So much butt sex. Most of the pottery pieces show hetero couples, but there are also pieces featuring two men. They also have some pretty excellent pots with boners used as spouts for the pouring vessels. When the Spanish colonisers arrived in Peru in 1526, they were like, Bloody hell, what are those? Or the Spanish equivalent. The Catholic colonisers were like, I'm a smasher! and then proceeded to criminalise premarital and non-reproductive sex. I love this, right? Is there ever a person in power who has banned or frowned upon casual sex that hasn't wandered down to the local brothel or taken advantage of his secretary to get his end away? The hypocritical behaviour just baffles me. There are quite a few theories about these pieces of pottery and why they were made. Some researchers think that they'd have been an education tool. Some think that they were metaphorical representations of those in power and those not in power. And others think that they provide some religious commentary. Whichever thing it is, considering that these pots are over 1,500 years old, they're pretty excellent. If you want to see a hefty collection of these pots, you're going to have to head to the Museo Larco in Lima, Peru. They don't mix them with the rest of the collection, though. Unsurprisingly, they have their very own gallery tucked away. I walk past churches, I like to look up at gargoyles. They're usually quite an amusing sight, but if you arrive at the parish church in Easton-on-the-Hill in Northamptonshire, you get a bit more than you expect with the sight of a pair of balls and a big butt hanging over the edge. The butthole is the conveniently placed water spout. 
The church itself dates from the 12th century, but the butt gargoyle dates to the 15th century. Surgery? Century. I'm a big fan of the Ken Follett series Pillars of the Earth, which follows characters in 12th century England, the main character being a stonemason whose dream it is to build a cathedral. It's a fantastic series which is really immersive and helps me to imagine the guy who carved this, and it has me wondering how the hell he got it signed off. Would the mason be the guy in charge, or an apprentice, or what? What are you carving there, Cuthbert? Oh, I'm just carving one of the gargoyles. Well, yes, why does it have testicles? Don't worry, the butthole's a spout. Oh, okay then, it's approved. It's certainly not something that will get council sign off no matter how liberal the town is. Some historians suggest that the sculpture could be mooning the devil. Others think that just some dude thought it'd be funny. Here comes the best word of the podcast. Sheila Nagig. Yes, it's a real word. And they're figurative stone carvings showing a seated woman with her legs open, exposing her vagina. I was also fucking surprised that this existed in medieval Europe with them being so prudish. They appear on buildings built between the 11th and 17th centuries and were usually put above windows and doors. Though these are quite shocking, scholars believe that rather than the intention of being erotic, these were pagan symbols of fertility, as well as protectors from evil. There aren't as many around as there used to be because, unsurprisingly, many were removed by easily offended clerics and uppity churchgoers. There's quite a famous drawing from a medieval manuscript where there's a nun picking dicks off a tree. It's used quite a lot in social media to shock people and say, oh my god, look at what the medieval people drew, isn't that crazy? The manuscript itself is from 14th century France and called Roman de la Rose. On the page with the nun picking some dicks, the nun appears again in a naughty embrace with a monk, which, as we know, is very much get-your-butt-to-hell type of deal. Other drawings in the same manuscript include a whole team of nuns gathering dicks, sex among monks and nuns, and a nun leading a monk by a chain attached to his penis. These naughty drawings come from a secular Parisian studio run by husband and wife team Richard and Jeanne de Montbaston. Remember, there's no printing press at this time, so if you wanted a copy of a book, someone had to do just that. And in this case, Jean and Richard were your go-to guys if you wanted something a bit spicy included in your very own copy. Some scholars speculate that as Jeanne ran the studio by herself after her husband died in 1353, that she was the person responsible for the racy and sinful illustrations. Yeah, Jeanne, you draw them dicks, babe. I could not for the life of me remember what this next piece of art was called, so I put out a call on Twitter with the following text. Does anyone know the name of that painting where a woman is naked and being fondled and eaten out by a load of men? I need it for research. Within 20 minutes, Ellen from Just the Zoo of His podcast sent me a link to the painting. The painting itself was done in 1859 by artist Nicolas Francois Octave Tasseyet. I was surprised to notice though that after looking at the painting a bit more closely, she's actually surrounded by three women. The painting is titled La Femme Damnée, which translates as the damned woman. I mean, no, is the answer to that. She's got a woman on each boob and a woman in her lap while they're all floating about. So I'd say she's doing absolutely fucking fine. The first photographic camera developed for commercial manufacture was a daguerreotype. I don't know how to say that camera built by Alphonse Giroux in 1839. That is when everything changed for erotica and people could obtain actual photographs of actual people when they were actually naked showing their actual genitals. Before I started researching for this episode I thought I'd seen quite a selection of vintage nudes. 
I even have a few in my living room, including the one that's featured on this week's episode artwork, because I think they're beautiful. I didn't expect to be taken aback by the explicitness of some of the photographs as they are literally full of porno pictures, which look so odd to me. The juxtaposition of something so sexually explicit with the perceived primness of the women's Victorian updos and stockings. I mean, of course, like most humankind, Victorians were having sex, so it's not so much of a jump for them to start taking pictures of it once they're able to, but it's still such a weird thing for me to see. It's not just like, oh, here's a couple having sex. Some of the photos are full-on close-up dicks... (laughs) close-ups of dicks in vaginas and it's like whoa there it is right there victorian bits and bobs all up in your face there's an amazing one from the 1880s which shows a threesome with a bloke dressed like a monk and two women dressed as nuns but very much not acting like them there's two blokes dressed up in what i would describe as moroccan garb wanking each other off a woman using a bedpost as a dildo (laughs) that one's brilliant and women spanking each other with some birch twigs It's like, why haven't I googled this before? If you want to see an incredible selection, don't pretend you don't, of course you fucking do. Just pop hold that pose art blart into Google and you'll see what I mean. Just don't do it at work, for fuck's sake. I'll put the link in the show notes. I had an absolute banger of a time with this one. No pun intended, but I'm happy about it. People like sex. People like looking at sex. People like looking at pictures of other people having sex. That's why really nothing in this episode should have been surprising to me or you. We can now access basically all the porn you could ever watch with a few clicks. No longer are the days of looking at drawings in manuscript margins or carrying around a naughty picture in your wallet. I'd say the future is VR erotica, but we're already there and it's already available. I wonder what the future will be. Robots like Sexbox Jude Law in the film AI? We're certainly heading that way, aren't we? And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and to rate and review wherever you listen. Thank you to everyone who's taken the time to do it so far. It's nice to know it's not just my mum listening. I've set up a coffee account and you can find it at coffee.com slash across the ages. Each episode takes about 12 hours to create and I do everything myself. So if you enjoy Across the Ages, then feel free to support me by buying me a coffee. Thank you to the absolute babes that have bought coffees for me so far and a special thank you to my monthly subscribers. Are you opening your wardrobe and feeling sad? Guess what? You can now buy Across the Ages t-shirts and hoodies by going to acrosstheagespodcast.com which is pretty exciting and all feels a bit fancy. But I guess I am fancy now. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore across the ages or you can shout my name really loud. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages. Thank you.